0: Good evening and welcome to The Fred Paul Show on ADH-TV. Well, as they disembark from their private jets and buses into air-conditioned conference rooms, do any of the 35,000 delegates at COP27 in Egypt really, deep down, think that what they discuss at the conference will actually change the weather on Earth in five, 10, or 20 years' time? It's a strange question to ask, not because it's invalid, but because it's one that isn't asked often enough. Somehow in our lifetime, a consensus has emerged that human behavior is changing the weather and that if we alter our behavior, the planet's weather will change accordingly. You have to go back to pagan times to find another society that believed it could do that, which is itself, in itself, disturbing enough It's arguable that the answer to the question is an emphatic no. The delegates don't believe that anything they achieve at COP27 will alter the weather on our planet. If they did, their own behavior wouldn't be so contradictory. Almost everything they discuss at COP27 is intended to limit the type of activities that got them there in the first place. If they really cared about minimizing their own impact on the planet, then they would have conducted the whole thing by Zoom. Here is former US Vice President Al Gore and one of the frequent flyers of the climate catastrophe class explaining it.
1: We have a credibility problem, all of us. We're talking and we're starting to act, but we're not doing enough. It is a choice to continue this pattern of destructive behaviour.
0: It's a choice, all right, Al. Here is British commentator Neil Oliver thoroughly eviscerating Al Gore's sanctimony on GB News last week.
2: In 2006, Al Gore launched his film An Inconvenient Truth about the imminent end of civilization due to man-made global warming. The real inconvenient truth is that Gore's predictions from a movie that netted $50 million at the box office have not come to pass. The prophet of doom, now worth $300 million, who said we could all help save the world by changing our lifestyles, has a $2.5 million home in Nashville with an annual energy bill of $30,000. It's worth wondering how often he sits inside and notes that while he said the ice caps would be gone by now, they've grown in size. Or how often... He remembers that while he said the polar bears would drown, their numbers have risen steadily for the last 15 years. The man who said Manhattan would be underwater on account of rising sea levels just bought a $9 million villa on the coast of
0: California. Neil Oliver's trademark is to poetically articulate the almost unprecedented power being accumulated by a cabal of borderline satanic globalists who are hell-bent on world domination, regardless of whatever democratic institutions they trample, let alone the hopes and aspirations of the citizens those democracies represent. But even Oliver's morbid shtick is more uplifting than these climate catastrophists trying to conceal their true intentions. Here's UN boss Antonio Guterres.
2: We are on a highway to climate hell with our foot still on the accelerator.
0: Lighten up, Tony, old son. This is a highway to hell. 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 At least ACDC made it look like fun. The ABC crossed this morning to Pat Conroy, who was at COP27 as the Australian Minister for International Development and the Pacific, and asked him why Prime Minister Anthony Albanese wasn't there.
3: More than 100 world leaders, heads of state there, as you say, for a very important meeting. Uh, UK Prime Minister Rishi Sunak, French President Emmanuel Macron, Joe Biden is going to attend after the midterms. Where's our Prime Minister? Well, our Prime Minister's made it very clear that he's got a series of international engagements over the next three weeks, including uh, the G20, the East Asia Summit. Well, so, so have Summit, these other world leaders, and, uh, so have some of the and, world leaders i just mentioned. Well, uh, well uh, for example, uh, I met with Henry Puna uh, today, who's the Secretary-General of the Pacific Islands Forum, and he said publicly that he understood why, why Mr Albanese uh, couldn't make it here. Being accountable to Parliament is very important.
0: What a quaint concept, being accountable to Parliament, although to Conroy it was more of an afterthought. He knows the main game at these conferences is to arrive with the biggest sting on your own citizens, and he proudly put Australia up there with the best of them.
3: Uh, And that's why Australia is the first country since the Glasgow COP last year to increase our ambition. Uh, As a result of the federal election, we have increased our medium term target very significantly. We've committed to net zero emissions by 2050 and 82% renewable energy by 2030 as well.
0: Notice he's not concerned with how many jobs this is going to cost, how much debt it will put us in or even whether it will plunge the whole nation into an energy crisis like the one Europe is currently experiencing because windmills and solar panels will never replace coal and gas. Of course, Conroy was there because he's the Minister for International Development and the Pacific, as if they get a vote in our elections. They don't even need one. Our politicians just bend over and let them shake us down for millions in compensation for their islands sinking as a result of global warming neither of which is actually happening. Meanwhile, they're also cozying up to our strategic rival, China. Those Pacific leaders know an easy scam when they see one. The mugs in this caper are you and I who are simply footing the bill and watching our once prosperous nation's economy disappear down the drain. And here's further proof that these carpetbaggers don't believe anything they do in Egypt will make a skerrick of difference to the climate. Climate Change Minister Chris Bowen and his mates from the Pacific Islands jointly applied to host COP 31, which will be held in 2026. It's a bit like pitching to host the Olympics, but with only one event, the triple backflip into a swimming pool filled with cash. Bowen said, quote, in hosting Australia and Pacific countries would profile the impact of climate change on the region. So the impact of climate change will still be around even as the private jets touch down in, if all things go to plan, Sydney in four years time for the 31st edition of this climate controlling conference. Who knew this annual event would be so ineffective? Well, the answer to that is you and I knew, but we just keep paying for it. Well, the key political message of our times is this, when your policies turn out to be bad for the voters, it's probably a good time to change your policies. To be fair to the current generation of politicians, this has always been a fundamental principle of democracy. It's just that this generation seems oddly determined not to heed it. We are watching it pan out in the United States right now as Democrats refuse to concede they have wrought anything but carnage on the US economy and social fabric and will today reap the rewards for that by probably losing both houses of Congress. The phenomenon is coming across the Pacific bound for Australia when the cost of Prime Minister Anthony Albanese's suicidal net zero targets hits swathes of voters sometime during his first term. If he doesn't pivot then, his time at the highest office might be shorter than Joe Biden's. But first, this Democratic reckoning is making a stopover in New Zealand, where the ruling Labor Party is reeling from some bad polling as a result of rampant inflation, high mortgage rates, and a government led by a woman with a messiah complex.
3: Otherwise, dismiss anything else. We will continue to be your single source of truth. We will provide information frequently. We will share everything we can, uh, everything you are, else you see, um, a grain of salt. Uh, and so I really ask people to focus on that. When you see those messages, remember that unless you hear it from us, um, it is not the truth.
0: Well, why would a government that is the sole source of truth need to change? The deputy leader of the ruling Labor Party, Kelvin Davis, said yesterday that despite increasing criticism from voters about the party's pernicious climate change policies and the lowest polls since taking government five years ago, quote, we cannot, we must not waver, unquote. Yeah, good luck with that one, mate. Elections are due by January 2024. To find out if Labor has a chance or if New Zealanders are finally going to wake up from their woke nightmare, let's get in Oliver Hartwich of the conservative think tank, the New Zealand Initiative. Oliver, welcome.
1: Great to be with you.
0: First, Oliver, I'd like you to listen to this grab of Jacinda Ardern addressing the Labour conference in Auckland on the weekend.
3: 66,000 children have been lifted out of poverty and all nine measures of child poverty in this country are in decline. Despite the biggest economic shock since the Great Depression, The New Zealand economy is bigger now than before COVID, 4.8% bigger. That is because of good
1: economic management.
0: Well, there are two claims here, Oliver, that she has made both children and the economy better off through her good political management. These things are difficult to quantify, but what's your feeling about them? Is Jacinda speaking the truth here?
1: Well, the Labour Party is making all sorts of claims these days. Just last week, the Labour Party issued a list of 100 things that they have allegedly achieved. The only thing missing from the list was the better weather in Wellington. So not all of these were actual achievements. I think you have to actually take this with a grain of salt. Um, When Jacinda Ardern talks about the economy doing well or doing better now than before COVID, well, I mean if you give me a few dozen billion dollars to stimulate the economy, I can probably generate some economic activity out of that too. The other thing is actually to say that a lot of the demographic factors and uh, social factors uh, that we can see are not really working in Jacinda Ardern's favor. So she mentioned child poverty. Yes, on some measures, child poverty is improving. On other measures, we now have five times the number of people sleeping in cars than we had um, in 2017 when Jacinda Adern took over. We also see that there is a rising bill for emergency accommodation, so she hasn't actually fixed the housing market. It was one of the promises, of course, she made in 2017 that she wanted to really alleviate poverty and homelessness and build 100,000 homes. Well, we know what happened to that promise. She didn't get anything done. And on some measures, the country has really gone backwards.
0: Yeah, you mentioned homelessness. She's quite famous for failing in that department because it was one of her key policies upon being elected in the first place. What, has, uh, what other effects have, it, have there been on ordinary New Zealanders as a result of Labor's four years in power?
1: Well, I think the biggest effect is probably the cost of living crisis that we can see now. I mean, it is present in many other countries around the world, but in New Zealand, it is really homemade, because unlike the Europeans, we are disconnected from European energy markets, so that shouldn't actually play a role. We are also a net food exporter, so in a world of rising food prices, actually, this should probably benefit New Zealand, at least through terms of trade. What we do actually see here is an economy that is really producing extremely high price increases, because our Reserve Bank, the Reserve Bank of New Zealand has stimulated the economy massively and it has taken its eyes off its core mandate, which should have been to keep prices stable. So when you're talking about the biggest impact that Jacinda Ardern's government combined with the Reserve Bank has had on New Zealanders' lives, it is probably that cost of living crisis. Life has become unaffordable in New Zealand. The official inflation rate sits at just over 7%. But keep in mind, the government has also lowered fuel prices because they have actually temporarily cut fuel duty. Without that, it would probably be close to 8% inflation already. And a lot of that really is happening in items that have nothing to do with, for example, the uh, Russian war against Ukraine or with international energy prices. It is a homemade inflation. And ironically, and really to add insult uh, to injury, This government today reappointed the Reserve Bank governor for another five years. So you miss your target, not just by little, but really by several percentage points. And you get another term for five years on an $880,000 annual salary. So that's roughly (laughs) what's happening in New Zealand. Good work
0: if you can get it, $880,000. Let's just look into the uh, Reserve Bank governor for a second. His name's Adrian Orr. He appeared before a parliamentary committee last week, and he blamed the country's inflation rate at the time was 6%, if I'm not mistaken, but is now creeping up to around 8 He blamed it on Ukraine, but you say it was actually caused by the Reserve Bank. Is that right?
1: That's right. He appeared before Parliament last week. And the story, the potted history, if you like, of inflation in New Zealand, according to the Reserve Bank governor, is that everything was fine, we had everything under control, and then Putin invaded Ukraine and things started to get out of control and now we've got inflation. That's a very nice story, except it's a Russian fairy tale, it's not true. Because even at the time of um, the beginning of the war in February this year, inflation was already running above 6%, if you exclude all the items that have to do with the war. And it hasn't improved since. So Governor Orr was really telling us a fairy tale. It's been debunked in the meantime by former Reserve Bank economists, um, Michael Waddell, one of them, one of our most prominent bloggers you find in New Zealand calculated that even if you take all the items out that have anything to do with Putin's war against Ukraine, you would still end up with about 6% inflation. So it's really a homemade thing. The other thing you can do, and I did that myself actually for my column in The Australian today, I had a look at the so-called Taylor Rule. So in economics, we can calculate what central banks should do, where they should set the cash rate to achieve a uh, target of inflation. And according to that, actually, the Reserve Bank should have set interest rates up much higher starting in 2021, when they still kept interest rates close to zero and still pumped in a lot of liquidity into the New Zealand economy. So if you take all of that together, the story is very clear. We've got a Reserve Bank that has created inflation. It is nobody else's fault, but the Reserve Bank of New Zealand. And that's why we have inflation in this country. And for the Reserve Bank governor now to wash his hands of any responsibility, say, oh, I was only Putin and I did my job, it's a bit too cute.
0: Yeah, well, pumping money into the economy and artificially low cash rate, that's a recipe for disaster, isn't it?
1: It is a recipe for disaster. And by the way, not just for the normal cost of living measures that we look at, it's also a disaster for the housing market. So what happened was that um, during COVID in these years when the Reserve Bank engaged in quantitative easing, so um, money printing, if you like, um, house prices in New Zealand really went out of control. I could see that with our own house, it went up by several hundred thousand dollars within a space of a few months. What happened afterwards is that the Reserve Bank tried to basically get all of this liquidity out of the system again. So now house prices have fallen by almost the same amount. So we had massive fluctuations in house prices. If you were unlucky enough to buy a house in the last couple of years, you would probably find yourself in negative equity now. And to make it worse, you would also have to pay a massively higher mortgage rate than you would have maybe two or three years ago. So unfortunately, the Reserve Bank, in combination with the government, has destabilized the New Zealand economy. It is a disaster. No matter where you look at. And Orr has just been reappointed
0: for another five years as head of the Reserve Bank. Does that mean that inflation is going to get
1: even worse for New Zealand? That means that it's going to be relatively expensive to fight inflation because Adrian Orr, unfortunately, doesn't have a reputation for price stability because he really um, dealt with everything else. He dealt with the Maori economy. He dealt with climate change, with diversity. But he took his eyes completely off the ball when it comes to inflation. And so to regain credibility in markets, to show markets that he's serious, he now has to be even tougher than a normal central bank governor would have to be. And so I think that is what we're looking forward to now. The next five years will be um, uh, characterized by a reserve bank that has lost its reputation and its credibility. And that will make it very costly for New Zealand to get back to a price stability path.
0: Well, speaking of credibility, the polls are heading south for Jacinda Ardern and her Labor Party. How likely are they to lose the next election, which will probably be held in about a year's time?
1: Well, you know, if it's just one rogue poll and the poll shows that we might get a change of government, I would say, well, take it with a grain of salt. Uh, Let's see how this goes. But actually, in fact, what we're looking at is a trend. And the trend started about a year ago. Keep in mind, in the 2020 election in New Zealand, Jacinda Ardern won an absolute majority, almost unheard of. More than 50 percent of the vote went to the Labour Party. And ever since, she has lost so much support that in the latest poll that we saw just this week, she was down to 32 percent. Based on that poll, the centre-right opposition would have 65 out of 120 seats in Parliament, so a comfortable majority. And as I said, it's not a single poll. This has been the trend. So basically, since the 2020 election, Labour has been gradually going down. At first, they said, oh, they might still govern perhaps together with the Greens. Then they said, oh, we might still govern perhaps with the Greens and the Maori Party. And now there's absolutely no way under current polling, no matter what poll you look at, that Labour could govern in any shape or form because the opposition has an outright majority.
0: Well, it looks like the National Party are in a pretty good position to take the next election then, if what you're saying is, is accurate. What should the National Party be doing to prepare the country to get back on track after the next election?
1: Well, the National Party can probably play it safe, at least that's the signals we get out of the National Party. They think if they don't make too many mistakes before the election, it is theirs um, to, for the taking. The problem is, of course, that's not enough for the country. The country needs credible policies. The country needs to have a program to really get us back onto our feet because under this current government, we have seen too many of our institutions damaged. We've already talked about the Reserve Bank, but it's actually true for the wider government in Wellington. We need serious reforms in practically every single area of public policy, starting with education. We need reforms at the Treasury We need a different uh, leadership for the Productivity Commission. We need uh, changes at Immigration New Zealand, at the Ministry for Business, Innovation and Employment. You basically go through all our government departments in Wellington and they need a reset. And that's what the opposition now needs to think about. How do we get a reset done when the public service actually seems to be so wedded to the current political setup? That's it. So (laughs) for national and... Yeah, go on, go on. And for the ACT party, we've got two opposition parties. We shouldn't forget ACT. There is one major centre-right party that's a bit comparable to your Australian Liberal Party, but we also have a party that doesn't really exist in New Zealand in that form, and that is ACT. ACT is a small classical liberal or you might say libertarian party, and they typically used to be on just one MP for many years. Well, they currently stand on 2% in the latest polls, uh, Sorry, 10% in the latest polls. so they will improve a lot. They will probably have a lot of influence over the future government led by the... Uh, Broader center-right party, the National Party. And I think together these two parties will have a mandate on current polling to reform the country and really to get New Zealand back on its feet.
0: Yeah, you used the word reset uh, a minute ago. That's not in the context of the World Economic Forum, I take it. Now tell me about Christopher Luxon, the new leader of the National Party. Is he the equivalent of say, Georgia Maloney in uh, New Zealand?
1: No, and I don't think he would quite see himself that way. No, Christopher Luxon, I must say, I've known for a long time. He used to be a member of the organization I lead, the New Zealand Initiative, when he was uh, the CEO of Air New Zealand. So I've known Christopher for a long time before he entered politics. Christopher is a very good manager. He has um, actually shown that at Air New Zealand and at his previous job um, at Unilever in Canada. Um, He is a good people manager. We have seen that. So he's someone who knows how to lead a company. He now is in the process of having to figure out what the differences are between leading a company and leading a country. So in political terms, he is still relatively new to politics. He's only been elected to parliament in the 2020 election. But he's already sending the right signals that he's ready to take on the country and actually take it as a turnaround job, which it is. And actually, he's got a stellar business career to look back to. He was CEO of the year um, at one stage for New Zealand. He was actually appointed by Jacinda Ardern, believe it or not, as head of um, her economic advisory council. So she rates him. And um, I've got great hope that um, he together with his Coalition Partner Act will actually make a material difference to New Zealand's policy settings, should he be elected next year.
0: Well, it sounds pretty positive if he is. Now, just before you go, Oliver, a few months ago, you were saying that New Zealand was on the verge of becoming a failed state. Does it feel now like the nation is waking up from its nightmare?
1: Well, I would still say that there is a chance that New Zealand might become a failed state because we are going backwards on every single measure. So if you look at the state of our education system, that's probably the worst indictment on the country. We have recently seen statistics showing that only about a third of New Zealand students pass a basic writing test after um, 10 years of schooling. That's simply not good enough. We've also seen statistics showing that if you are in a sl 1 school, you only have a 2% chance of passing that test. And talking about Decile 1 schools, we have also seen that um, regular attendance, that means students attending at least 90% of the lessons is down to only 25% in these DSL-1 schools. So we've got a massive challenge ahead on education, for example. And that's just one of the areas in which we need to change and which we need to improve. Healthcare is another one. Um, Housing remains a problem. Infrastructure delivery remains a problem. So this country has problems in every single policy area. And we've got problems with our major institutions in Wellington. So this new government, if they come in next year, will have a massive task ahead of them. They have to change this country. They have to turn it around. They have to make sure that it doesn't continue on its path towards a failed state. And that's going to be the agenda for the coming years.
0: Well, it sounds like the next election can't come quickly enough. Oliver Hartwich, thank you so much for your time. Thank you. That's Oliver Hartwich, the executive director of the conservative think tank, the New Zealand Initiative. You're probably aware that wokeness is almost always accompanied by misery. It needs to be. How can you hate your own culture, your own history, often your own family, and be so pessimistic about the future and not be miserable? Sure, wokesters try to hide it and some of them do it quite well. Presenters on the ABC, for example, put on a cheery facade, but it's difficult to maintain when deep down you think that life on earth is going to end because the bogans in the suburbs drive petrol-fueled cars, fry too much meat on their fancy barbecues and own too many flat-screen TVs. Other professional worksters take a different approach, going the full Monty on the misery scale in order to make themselves relevant and keep the support and donations flowing into whatever dodgy outfit they represent. You've got to give these people credit for at least being honest. They are so blatantly unhappy that you would have to wonder which came first. Are they miserable because they think the world is going to end? Or do they think the world is going to end because they need a cause to explain their natural state of misery? Either way, this is what you end up with. This is Welsh Extinction Rebellion founder Roger Hallam explaining what will happen after the forthcoming societal collapse and I apologize in advance for the grim details he uses. So what will happen is episodes where someone, a gang of young men come into your house, they take your girlfriend, they take your mother, they put her onto the table, and they gang rape her in front of you. And then after that, they take a hot stick and they poke out your eyes and they blind you that's the reality of the annihilation project that you face. Oddly specific, isn't he? Apart from being the founder of apocalyptic climate groups for depressed teenagers, Roger is also useful if you're throwing a party that has gone past midnight and the neighbours are complaining. Just invite Roger over and watch the place clear out in minutes. Jolly Roger's latest project is Just Stop Oil, whose acolytes have been making fools of themselves lately by gluing their hands to famous artworks, screeching out some apocalyptic prediction, and then politely waiting for a security guard to gently unglue them so they can be given a slap on the wrist by a magistrate. Curiously, it's his minions who normally go through these legal processes But on the weekend, the cops went looking for him instead. The Sun newspaper in London bragged it had infiltrated the Just Stop Oil group and tipped the cops off that they were planning to disrupt traffic around London every day from now until Christmas. The cops went looking for him at his flat in posh South Kensington. He wasn't in, so they used a battering ram to open the door and took away a laptop, among other evidence. Whether they were interested in the laptop's contents or just wanted to prove that Hallam is a hypocrite who uses products made from oil was not reported. With a bit of luck, however, Hallam's apocalyptic predictions might finally be coming true, at least for him. So now that billions of people have been injected with the Pfizer vaccine, some doctors are starting to wonder what's actually in it. Rebecca Weiser, who has been one of the handful of Australian journalists trying to uncover the truth behind these vaccines, reports on what these researchers are finding in this week's Spectator Australia. And I've got to say, what she describes reads like science fiction. One of the curious doctors is Brisbane GP, David Nixon, who found under a microscope, quote, strange mechanical structures unquote, that used to assemble, that used arms to assemble and disassemble, quote, glowing rectangular structures that looked like circuitry and microchips, unquote. Other researchers in Italy found in blood from vaccinated people, mechanical looking particles that that resemble, quote, graphene oxide and possibly other metallic compounds, unquote. Weiser then writes that the Italian researchers believe the damaged blood is contributing to post-vaccine coagulation disorders, which in turn contribute to increased malignancies, while graphene family materials are associated with oxidative stress, DNA damage, inflammation, and damage to those parts of the immune system that suppress tumors. She finally reports that vaccinated people are more, not less, likely to die from COVID than the unvaccinated. It is an astonishing piece, and I highly recommend picking up a copy of the magazine to read it if you haven't already. Let's bring in The Spectator Australia's online editor, Alexandra Marshall, to discuss it. Alexandra, welcome. Thank you for having me,
4: Fred. Now, Alexandra, you say this piece has gone viral. Where has it been picked up? So this piece by Rebecca Weiser has been picked up on Twitter, which we all know has been suppressing content about vaccines and COVID for a long time. And now that it has been freed, as Elon Musk says, people are now able to start discussing some of the medical ramifications of COVID vaccines. But as Rebecca Weiser points out, and I think you pointed out earlier, Perhaps there should have been more interest in what's in the vaccines before we went ahead and inoculated billions of people around the world. And the lack of curiosity is what struck me in her piece where uh, doctors and the TGA in particular just don't want to know. They don't want to fund research into looking at what's happening, even though it's globally acknowledged that there is an increase in blood disorders and strokes and heart attacks that are not caused directly by COVID itself.
0: Well, it looks like we're seeing the result of the freeing of Twitter already, do you think?
4: Absolutely. I mean, the shadow banning that went on in regards to conservative writers, libertarian writers, and indeed medical doctors who dissented from the you know, big state approved message are finally allowed to speak, and this is bad. I mean, you saw straight away that Pfizer, for instance, has pulled its enormous amount of marketing money from Twitter. So beforehand, Twitter had a conflict of interest where it was basically protecting a corporate client by silencing information. And now that's no longer the case.
0: Wow. Yeah, the mind boggles. Now, (laughs) just getting back to Rebecca's piece though, one of the key statistics these days is excess mortality. It's a phrase you hear very often now because it's very difficult to manipulate. Now, Rebecca Weiser reports that excess mortality in Australia in July was up 17%. I think for the first six months of the year, it was up 13%. In Germany, this is the the mind-blowing one. In Germany, for people over 60, excess mortality was up a whopping 174% in the year to last month. Tellingly, 80% of people over 60 in Germany are vaccinated. Alexandra, what's going on here?
4: So the reason excess mortality is being clung onto as an important figure is because there has not been uh, interest or reporting accuracy when it comes to potential vaccine injuries or even COVID injuries. So because that data is not being collected or investigated in great detail, uh, the only statistic that people have is excess mortality because a death has to be registered with the government by default. So any anomalies in either COVID or vaccines will show up eventually in excess excess mortality. So that's why that figure around the world is of such interest. Now, uh, what it should be doing is prompting domestic organisations to ask the question, why is this happening and why is the main cause of death heart conditions and strokes. Now, what uh, Weister says is not happening and what Dr Nixon said is not happening is they're not doing forensic autopsies on people who die, so they cannot tell what is killing them particularly. And that's what they're asking for, some actual detail to determine whether these genuinely are vaccine injuries or if they're something else.
0: Well, just going back to the the period of the pandemic itself, one of the things that annoyed me throughout that entire pandemic and the lockdown and the reports that we were getting every day was the ambiguity of the deaths attributed to COVID. Do you think there'll ever be a review of that in Australia?
4: It's very hard to say. I know in America, it was finally pointed out that the vast majority of all excess deaths in America during COVID were from people who were morbidly obese. And because America has such a high percentage of morbidly obese people compared to somewhere like India or Europe, that that was accounting for a lot of the discrepancies that you don't see in other countries. And that was never discussed during the pandemic, but it is being discussed now. But there seems to be an enormous reluctance from governments and health authorities to investigate themselves, essentially, which is what we're asking them to do, to have a look at what they did. And part of it's due to the rising court cases, because we're seeing around the world that courts are ruling in favour of the unvaccinated. And so as these investigations go on, there's going to be a, a hell of a lot of litigation attached to the pandemic procedures in all respects and so data which is what Rebecca's article is really about looking at what happened and what's really going on is going to be hard to come by while ever there is a monetary aspect attached to negligence if it occurred during each country.
0: And what about negligence in the media? I mean The Spectator <laughs> is one of the few places where you will find these things discussed and ADHTV I hasten to add why do you think the rest of the mainstream media is so reluctant to look at this stuff?
4: Yes, Fred, ADHTV and Spectator, you know, it was so hard to, uh, to fight against the current. Like we had almost all of mainstream media actively going out and pursuing and degrading and in some ways uh, segregating and discrimination against anybody who dared to dissent, dissent from the overall message. Now, there were some reporters and journalists, particularly in mainstream media, who acted appallingly and said things that would today be classed as active hate speech, inciting hatred. I mean, some of it is a violation of their media policies to start with. And yet we saw no uh, disciplinary action against any of these people during the pandemic. It was almost supported by their networks. And a lot, there's a whole hashtag trending right now called No Amnesty. And that is because a lot of mainstream reporters are like, oh, please forgive us. We didn't know what we were doing. And uh, everyone's like, you did know, because publications like The Spectator and and like ADH were telling you that this was wrong when you were doing it. I mean, human rights are meant to be uh, a a general thing for a reason. They don't change. And yet they were abandoned during the pandemic for the slightest brush of fear. We're talking about zero point zero percent, one percent and people went crazy, especially reporters.
0: Well, the generous interpretation, I'd say, that the media failed in this department during the lockdown and during the pandemic is that they read the mood of the readership. That would be one generous way of saying it. There are more sinister interpretations that we shouldn't, probably don't need to uh, go into here. But my feeling, Alexandra, is that if they have read the mood of the readership, that mood is changing. And as we mentioned a minute ago, Twitter, is is accelerating that process, don't you think?
4: Yes, but the media says that they deal in facts and they deal in truth, and they're meant to be a respected authority. And yet we had people in the media saying things like, it's safe to sit down when you're drinking at a pub, but it's not safe to stand up, that we've got vaccine passport protected gyms and clubs full of COVID, and yet they never questioned the efficacy of vaccines. I mean, they failed in their basic principle of asking questions and so if we're going to have an investigation to what happened, the first question I would ask is why didn't the media do their job investigating clear discrepancies between reality and what was being said by politicians? That's something that no one has answered.
0: Well, that's going to open one hell of a can of worms. Now
4: (laughs) You're safe, Fred. You guys did the right (laughs) thing. (laughs) Thank
0: you. And you are too. We're in good company. Now, well, one way of looking into this would be a Royal Commission. Absolutely. Um, What sort of terms of reference do you think the Royal Commission should have?
4: I'm torn on a Royal Commission only because they are run, you're investigating yourself as far as the government's concerned. So just like the bushfire failures, it's very difficult to get a Royal Commission that will be honest. It should technically take place Uh, and if it does take place, it should be about whether there was abuses of power, especially by state premiers and by the federal government, whether there was negligence and whether or not Um, health ministers should be allowed to continue creating health orders that are not based in logical science. That was one of the terrifying things that happened during the pandemic where the court said, yes, we agree those rules make no sense, but the minister is still allowed to make them. That can't be allowed to continue if we're going to have a science-based society. So we should start there at least and maybe think about returning all the horrific fines to people would be a good amnesty beginning if we're going to go somewhere.
0: Yeah, I like this talk about an amnesty. I think (laughs) an expression of remorse might be a good place to start.
4: Yeah, I'm sorry, would be a good start.
0: Yeah, yeah. Anyway, let's talk about Swedish activist uh, Greta Thunberg, who has pivoted from being the figurehead for school strikers to become a full blown anti-capitalist. Looks like she's about to transform this into quite a career. Alexandra, what's your prediction of how this will pan out for her?
4: It appears to be that she's mutating or evolving, can we say, into a genuine political figure for the basically green communist movement. Whatever you want to call it, eco-fascism or green communism, it's all the same thing. And the central message is in order to save the planet, we have to make civilization poorer so that you have less, which is a, a terrifying message to have. And yet it is gaining traction and people are willingly dragging civilization toward poverty, which I think is the first time it's ever happened. I mean, with the old socialist utopia, at least they thought they were going to get free stuff. Yeah. This time they're like, yeah, no, we're gonna give everything away and it'll be fine. Like, no, no, you won't like the caves and you won't like candles, like, trust me. I, um, like, the
0: fa- I like the fact that there's a, a rivalry has emerged between her and all those self-appointed uh, sanctimonious leaders at COP27, how she's s- given them the brush.
4: <laughs> how sad do they look rocking up to COP27 when the spiritual leader of the movement is not there anymore? They're almost, <laughs> they're so leader. desperate to have attention. They're like, we did the right thing, we arrived. It's like, guys, this is so last year. It's so 2021. Uh, but I love how she's. Uh, Greta has abandoned capitalism because capitalism is e- evil and the problem with the whole world. Yet she's gone and printed who knows how many million copies of her book how many trees got chopped down in the process i'm not quite sure and she's now selling those they're not being given away for free they're being sold which would be a capitalist you know principle going on there so yeah it's a little bit you know do as i say not as i do from Greta, like all communist you know, overlords
0: indeed indeed well just speaking of her book it describes this moment in history as the most decisive time in history Yet, Alexandra, we have never had more reason to be optimistic right now. With we've, we've got increased health, longevity, wealth, crop yields are at, uh, continually breaking records. Extreme weather is on the decline, and the uh, the fatal effects of extreme weather is also on the decline. What do you think? What? Why is Greta so pessimistic?
4: It's because it's the most privileged a privileged generation in human history, deciding that they are the most victimized, which I think is quite entertaining. I'm trying to imagine what Greta would say if she'd been born, I think it's four or 500 years ago when they had that appalling time when it was floods and no sunlight and then all the crops failed, then it snowed everywhere in Europe and then, you know, they got two sets of plagues. I mean, they would think that the world was genuinely ending back then if that was the case. These guys, they are, they're creating problems that don't exist Which means that those problems have no solutions. So if you start saying a problem isn't, uh, you start talking up a problem that isn't real. Well, then you can go on forever and ever and ever, uh, demanding solutions to it. Now that's the real danger. So uh, she'll still be going about apocalypse when she's seventy or eighty, and we still won't have water up to our necks. It'll be exactly the same.
0: Yes, but will (laughs) anyone be listening to her? Because my argument, my my interpretation, would be that there's nothing more career destroying than producing a book. (laughs) that within weeks winds up in the bargain bins.
4: Well, forgetting Greta for one second, what I want to know is, why hasn't anyone asked Albanese, our Prime Minister, who's apparently concerned about climate change, why are we giving hundreds of millions to the the Pacific Islands after the Pacific Islands just signed all these deals to allow China to mine their fossil fuels and renewables, minerals in the waters? I mean, surely signing deals with the world's biggest emitter, which is China, For fossil fuel mining is a contradiction to please save us, the water is rising. I mean, he has never answered a genuine question on this topic, and I doubt that any journalist is going to ask it.
0: I think what you've just pointed out is exposing this climate (laughs) scam for what it is. It's all strategic geopolitical strategy. It's
4: paternalistic. It's this idea of Oh, the Pacific Islands can't help themselves, so the West must help them. And meanwhile, the Pacific Islands are literally doing deals with China under the table and build military bases. We are being played like fools, and Albanese and Labour have to leave this whole hug it out mentality and just throw money into nowhere because Australia needs its money right now. We have a financial crisis and an idiot regime which is being played with basically 101 ideology.
0: Yep. Well said. Now, just before you go, let me quote from your latest piece on The Spectator website. We have taught children to seek personal achievement through shallow and public portrayals of virtue or activism and that involves little more than taking a heavily filtered photograph. Now, that seems harmless enough until you remember what else teenagers do, which is seek attention for all the wrong reasons. Alexandra, where has this obsession with social media led to?
4: Well, Corita Thunberg's probably the chief millennial dragging people towards a self-destructive end. But on a smaller scale, we have our teenagers of today and even younger who have taken, they've got no competition at school. They've been told participation awards are the only thing. So they're seeking competitive behavior online. And we've told them that their way to be popular, the way to achieve something is to take selfies and to get you know clicks, likes and follows. And so what they're doing is getting involved in these TikTok fads, which basically risk their life for attention and parents are not following it on. So we've got people under 14, some as young as eight and nine, who are doing things like choking themselves quite literally to death for clicks and follows. And no one is really looking at the, the mental illness driven by these trends online. And why our young people are seeking this gratification online instead of doing productive things like we used to now there was always risk taking behavior there always the odd idiot at school who was doing something dangerous but that's gone from a couple of morons in the popular club to a vast majority of young people who this is their only way to get attention and it's going under the radar and kids are dying and no one is talking about it.
0: Well you are on the Spectator (laughs) Australia's website and good on you Alexandra Marshall you always have a good eye for the uh, most disturbing stories. And uh, we thank you for your time.
4: Thank you so much for having me, Fred.
0: That's The Spectator Australia's brilliant online editor, Alexandra Marshall. Voters in America are gearing up for a huge day. The midterm elections are on. These are the halfway point in a presidential term. The pundits are predicting big wins for the Republican Party. Polls indicate the Republicans will take control of both the House and the Senate, which would virtually mean Joe Biden is president in name only. The Democrats are doing their absolute best working overtime, rolling out Obama to all these battleground states, trying to win votes. They have dished out on Trump, labeling the candidates he's endorsed as MAGA Republicans. MAGA being Trump's catch cry, make America great again. And what exactly is wrong with that? especially when America doesn't look too crash hot under this Biden administration. Global adversaries and indeed those in the Western world laugh at this bumbling president who's just off with the fairies. As Fox News host Judge Jeanine Pirro said today, quote, if Republicans don't win, law and order will continue to be out of control. If the Republicans don't win, it'll continue to be the end of free speech as we saw with Big Tech and the election in 2020, where they didn't let us talk about Hunter Biden. There are issues galore in America. That's before we touch on the state of the economy and the education system. But what has shocked many, many Republican voters is that during a campaign rally, former President Donald Trump called Florida's popular Republican governor, Ron DeSantis, Ron de Sanctimonious. This has shown that there is animosity between the two. People in the know believe that after the midterms, where DeSantis will win re-election comfortably, there will be open warfare between the two. This is because DeSantis is Trump's biggest threat when it comes to his return to the White House in 2024. For Republicans and those who want the woeful Biden out of the White House, it's a sad development because both Trump and DeSantis are huge talents. Unlike the Democratic Party, there is plenty of talent waiting in the wings of the Republican Party. It's believed the animosity between the two has grown because Trump thinks DeSantis was ungrateful for the endorsement the then president gave him, which revived the three-term congressman's faltering campaign for governor in 2017. Trump is also annoyed, insiders say, because DeSantis has refused to rule out making his own bid for the White House in 2024. But what people are forgetting is that this may be part of Trump's overall strategy. He has form for playing hard to begin with. Who can forget during the Republican presidential primaries, he famously called senior Republican hopefuls Little Marco Rubio and Lion Ted Cruz. Lying, that is, not lion. Lying Ted Cruz. Now, at these rallies, he described Cruz as a good man and called Rubio a great friend. And who can forget his tough talk on the Rocket Man, aka Kim Jong-un of North Korea. The way Trump was talking, it was as if America was gearing up for nuclear war with North Korea. It was at one point the biggest news story in the world. After a bunch of name-calling, there was a summit in Vietnam where Trump abruptly abruptly broke it off, cancelling a planned signing ceremony. At the time, Trump said, quote, sometimes you have to walk and I think that was one of these times. But then there was a second meeting where the president famously shook hands with Kim Jong-un on North Korean soil, the first US president to do so. Trump then announced that nuclear talks would resume and the two countries were designating teams of officials to take the lead. He even invited Kim, who rarely leaves the country, to visit him at the White House. All I'm saying is playing hardball seems to be a Trump tactic. After all, Trump's best-selling book is called The Art of the Deal. Two rules which could be relevant here when it comes to Trump's sledging of DeSantis are, one, the worst thing you can possibly do in a deal is seem desperate to make it. That makes the other guy smell blood and then you're dead. And two, when people treat me badly or unfairly or try to take advantage of me, my general attitude all my life has been to fight back very hard. Well, maybe right now we are witnessing the art of the deal. And just before I go, the ABC is at it again. There is no doubt the national broadcaster is the gift that keeps on giving. Last night when I was watching the ABC News, I had to laugh when the newsreader in her bulletin said, Italy's far right new government. This was in a news bulletin about the influx of illegal migrants in Italy and the fact that Georgia Maloney's newly elected government is deciding to do something about it. Shock horror! By the way, it's hardly a surprise because Maloney did campaign hard on reversing the collapse of Italy's border control. But when it comes to the ABC, which we fund, you have to love how out of touch their presenters and producers are. Too many halloumi and quinoa salads in Ultimo, I'd say. How is Georgia Maloney's government a far-right government? Italy's first female prime minister was a capable minister in the Berlusconi government a decade ago. In 2012, she founded the Brothers of Italy, a name she took from the Italian anthem. How shocking! And do you want to hear why media outlets like the ABC are labeling her far right? Well, it's because she supports Christianity, wants more police on the streets tackling crime, wants cost of living relief, control over illegal immigration, lower taxes, and a reassertion of a traditional Italian identity, which means more independence from the European Union. And she plans to tackle the country's energy crisis by increasing the supply of fossil fuels and nuclear power. How far right is that? News bulletins like the one I watched last night prove that the ABC isn't the bastion of diversity it purports to be. Rather, it is naive about anything but left green politics. When will voters wake up and demand the government stop funding a bunch of supercilious inner-city ideologues? Even worse, the coalition was in power for nearly a decade and didn't make a dent in this increasingly partisan, left-leaning media organisation. Well, that's all from me. Thanks for watching. If you're in Sydney, there's an event on tomorrow that you might be interested in. It is the 23rd National Conference of Australians for Constitutional Monarchy in the city, hosted by my friend and colleague, David Flint. There will be a live interview with John Howard and addressed by author Lieutenant Colonel Peter O'Brien and prepared video contributions from former Prime Minister Tony Abbott and myself. Tickets are cheap and selling fast. Just look for Australians for Constitutional Monarchy on Facebook. And I'll see you tomorrow night right here on ADH-TV at 8 o'clock. Good night.